Welcome to the Leaps of Faith podcast. I'm your host, Marissa Coleman. I'm so glad you're here. Whether this is an interview with an active member of the church, an ex-Mormon, or anyone in between, remember to be curious and to create space in your heart and mind. We are here to bridge the divide between us. Now, let's get to the interview. All right. Well, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Leaps of Faith podcast. I'm here with my new friend, Amanda Chandler. Um, Amanda, could you kind of tell us about who you are right now? Like, do you have kids? Do you work? Um, Who are you in the present? Yeah, I um, am mom of four boys. So my boys range from 11 to 22. Um, So we've still got two at home and two that have graduated. Um, we currently live in Utah. We moved here about three and a half years ago. We've pretty much lived a lot of different places on the Western side of the country. Um, I'm originally from Washington state. We've lived in Idaho and Nevada and Colorado and Arizona and now Utah. I swore I would never in a million years live in Utah. So I went to Rick's college and then from there I went to um, Utah State to find my husband, of course. And then, um, and I just swore in it that I would just never ever live in Utah. And now here I am. So we've lived all over the, um, all over the West side. We've gone from Washington to Idaho to Nevada to Colorado to Phoenix. So we're here and we just, we really love it um, so far. It's been really good for our kids. Um, of course, you know, it's Utah, so it's got its pros and its cons, but for the most part, we're really glad to be here and it's been a good fit for, for everybody. Well, that's great. I'm glad yeah. that, you know, I know you, you said you didn't want to settle there, but I'm glad that you guys have found a good space for you. And your yes. Family. Yes, we have. It's it's been a good fit. I've got one son that's in at school in St. George, and then uh, my other boy, he is going to head up to Utah State in the fall. So I've just got the two left, and one's in high school, and one's in elementary. So we're we're in a good place. I love it. I work um, part time as a caregiver, so I love the elderly. It is my passion for caring for them. It is just something that I have enjoyed and just love. So I was a stay-at-home mom for 16 years, and then I went back to work just part-time. So I get the best of both worlds. I I get to have fun with some elderly and take care of them and my boys at the same time. So it works out great. Oh, that sounds like such a great situation. That's wonderful. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so what a great introduction. Um, do you think we can jump into you describing your personal faith journey and the role that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has played in that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Let, let, me, let me go back a little bit. Um, I grew up in a very, probably a very traditional LDS family. Um, my dad and my mom have always been active um, as long as I've ever known. My grandfather was the very first bishop in Spokane, Washington. Um, he built wow, the very that's first, amazing. Yeah, he built the very first chapel and was called by the prophet to be the bishop. And so I have a long line of, of ancestors that have come from the, to the LDS church. Um, my dad growing up, um, my mom and my dad didn't get along really well. 
my dad um, is, hasn't always been the best with money, as you could say. Um, but he loved the the way that money made him look, you know, prestige. My dad's always been into prestige, kind of power, kind of that attitude. But my parents were dead broke. You would never know it growing up. Like my mom and my dad never would ask for help or get help from the church. So, you know, we had really nice homes, but we didn't have heat and we didn't have, sometimes we didn't have um, electricity or little things like we never got new clothes. Um, you know, from the time I was 10, I was babysitting and working so that I could make my own money. So it was, it was really kind of strange because everybody just assumed from our home that we had a lot of money, but we didn't. My mother um, was always just really angry with my dad because of his financial decisions and the fact that she had to work. She did not want to work. She wanted to be a stay home mom and my dad, the way that he just had us living, it wasn't possible for her to not work. So there was a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness. So my mom just, um, my mom was just an angry mom. She just had always been like that um, for as long as I knew. She wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and she just couldn't because of his decisions. So it just, it wasn't a, it wasn't a happy place to live, you could say. My dad was never home. I always just adored and loved my dad. I wished that he could be home more because he was a very calming presence in my life. But because of the animosity between my mom and my dad, it just, my dad was just never home. Always doing a church calling, bishop, bishop's counselor, high councilman, just always in higher up in the church, um, just so he could never be home. Um, just became very, very busy with his callings. So it it was a it was a rough um, it was a rough beginning, I guess you could say. I have a sister that is 18 months older than me, and she was the perfect child, absolutely the perfect child. Never did a thing wrong, very shy, very smart, very um, very much into the church. She had 100% seminary attendance all four years, and that was early morning seminary. It was hard to compete with that. I was very loud, very outgoing, um, always loved to be the center of attention. And even though, you know, my mom appreciated that part of me, my dad did not. My dad was very shy um, and just didn't quite know how to rein me in, I guess you could say. I was I was a pretty good kid. I never had issues. Um, I always knew that there wasn't a lot of LDS kids around, and so I had to be the example. So I never really made any bad choices. I didn't get my first kiss until I was a junior in high school. Um, always, you know, went to seminary. Always knew that I needed to save face um, for my for my mom and dad, you could say. So it, 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 that's just the way that it was. Yeah, we never talked about our financial choice or, you know, our financial situation with those outside of the church. Um, and when my parents really needed help, they would never, ever ask. So it, it was, you know, back and forth. And that's just kind of the way it was. Seems like a lot of um, putting on fronts. And, oh, it was, um, yeah just kind of carrying the burden 
inside or in, you know, in the dark. Um, I'm sure that weighed on you for a long time. It was really hard just because my mom was, was very, uh, my mother has just always been a narcissist. Um, even when I was little, little, I remember my mother always saying to me that she just wishes, she just wanted to just go to Mexico and never come back. And just because of everything going on with my dad and I would bear that burden because it was me not being perfect, me not being great, like my sister and, you know, and then on Sundays, every Sunday, she, my mother was so doting on us and loving and caring. It was like having, it, it was having a Jekyll and Hyde for a mother, you know, when everyone was around or when we had friends over, my mother was very loving and doting. And then the moment that they left or my mom would come home from work, coming home from work was probably the hardest because she just did not want to have to do that. She did not want to have to work and having to work just absolutely put her in a rotten mood. So it, it was just how things were growing up. I didn't really know any different, even though I went to my friend's homes and saw their parents is different. I just knew that that was my reality and I always had to look happy and act accordingly and my mom would be okay. Wow. So how did this kind of upbringing affect your relationship with, with the church or with your faith? So it, it started actually, my falling away story is a little different than most. Um, after I attended Rick's, I just didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And my mom and dad um, kind of were, you know, well, you're going to be turning 20 and you can either think of going on a mission or you can think of getting married. And I had dated a lot. I just didn't feel like I was quite ready for marriage. Um, But I also knew I did not want to go on a mission. I was determined. I, I thought for sure that... I was going to be sent to the outskirts where I was going to have to eat cat. And I just did not <laughs> want to go on a mission. And that was pretty dead set in my brain. So I just felt like, okay, well, I better start dating seriously and start to find my companion. And I felt like Utah was the best place for that. So I decided to go up to Utah State and almost immediately just found my group of LDS friends and... Um, and met a guy really quickly after that. He was a return missionary. Um, he was he had all of the check marks that I had written down that I needed. Um, right? Didn't we all have those lists oh, that we absolutely. made in Young Women's? We made that in Young Women's. <laughs> all yep, we yeah. sure did. Like return missionary has a good family, you know, pays his tithing. And I guess I didn't really, I didn't really think about the whole sexual attraction part. I knew that it was there for me. I, it wasn't there for him. And I could feel that from the very beginning. However, I put that, you know, on the burner, on the down low of, you know, he, he's just being a good boy. You know, he just wants to make sure that we can get married in the temple and all of the above. There, um, there started to be signs of abuse, which I did not notice in my 20s, of course. He pretty much took me away from all of my friends. He felt like I was better off just to hang out with him, which I thought was so loving and so kind of him that he wanted to spend all of his time with me. 
Um, and then gradually the verbal abuse started in dating. Um, and I, to be honest with you, I just kind of pushed that aside. I was so dead set on, I need to get married so that I don't have to go on a mission at 21 because I only saw two, two options. Absolutely only two options. My sisters only had two options. It was either go on a mission or get married and they both went on a mission. I knew that that wasn't what I wanted. So Good. were you just terrified to turn 21 then? Was that like a deadline? I really wasn't. I really wasn't because I felt like I was in a good, a good relationship that was leaning towards mar marriage. He was the elders corn president. He was just perfect in my book. So it was a really odd engagement. He, I could tell he didn't really want to ask, but at the same time, we both felt like it was what we had to do as start of, as part of our relationship. How um, interesting. It, it wasn't really, it never felt like a choice between the two of us. It was, we were comfortable. Um, you know, I would deal with his breakdowns and with his mean words. I would never fight back. I was never taught to fight back, to fight back. I was never taught to say, that's no, not okay the way that you're talking to me. It was just, this is the way it's going to be and how he's going to talk to me for however long, you know, and it will get better. So that's what I had always envisioned was things would get better once we got married. Right. And I'm, I'm just seeing so many parallels between you and what your, your mother experienced of just, you know, putting oh, up with this. Yes. Um, it was basically, a, a, it was pretty much searching for love from any man. It was something that I'd always wanted from my father and I was still searching it for it through my first husband. Um, so we did, we ended up getting married in the temple. It was a lovely day and we came back to the hotel that night and I was expecting that to be our first time and it to be a magical experience. And that is when um, my first husband told me that we would not be having a physically intimate relationship throughout our marriage. What? Yes. Which really, I, I did not understand. I had waited my whole life. I was so excited thinking this was it. And he just put it down, kiboshed right there and then. And so this will not be happening and we will not be bringing this into our marriage. Had you and, talked about having children or anything like oh, that before? Um, we had, we had, we definitely had as um, part of our conversations, like how many kids do you want? How many do you, you know, we definitely wanted children. And I honestly just thought it was the craziness of the day. Maybe he was overwhelmed. Um, and I just really, I really wasn't even sad because I thought it will change, you know? Sure. It, it, every day will be different and we will learn to, you know, to bring this into our marriage and it maybe it's just going to take a little bit of time. And um, we went on our honeymoon right after that. There was no physical intimacy. And it probably was about two weeks later that I started to get concerns um, you know, he was not wanting to hold my hand. He was not wanting to cuddle. He was not wanting to do anything that a marriage would do. And I didn't know what to do at that point. I had no idea. Well, of course. Yeah. So the only thing I could think of was to call my mom and dad and tell them what was going on. 
And my mom and my dad both immediately said, that's not normal. Like, you guys should be having sex all the time. This isn't normal behavior. So the, the way to fix that was to go to our bishop that we had never met because we were still very new married and get counseling from him. That was that was what they had told me. I, however, did not tell them about the verbal abuse going on. It had gotten from a little bit to pretty much over the top. It was an everyday situation, mainly when I would try to get him to become intimate with me. It was you're fat, you're ugly, you know, it, it's you didn't do this right. So I'm not going to get near you. It was always, always, always my fault. Oh my gosh. And so you just start, I started to believe that it was me. I wasn't what he wanted. It was never about him being the problem. It was about me being the problem. So we went to the bishop and he went in first. And when I went into the room, I will never forget. I, I, I always thought of bishops pretty much on the same level as Jesus Christ. Like they were all knowing, they were all powerful. They were there to help me. Um, it, it, was, it was just the way that I had a relationship with my father, never knowing him. And so I trusted. So my husband left, I went into the room and I trusted this man and told him everything going on. And I will never forget when he looked at me and said, you're a liar and (gasps) you, if you keep on doing this and the, and the path that you're going down, you will upset your heavenly father so much that when you see him, when you die, you you will be so sad at the way that he will look at you, that Jesus and his disappointment in you. So I pretty much crumbled at that point. Oh my gosh. It absolutely ruined me. I, I, from that point, I was the lowest of lows. I can honestly say that just those words, the way that he looked at me and the way that he talked to me, I was done at that point. I I no longer had the fight in me. I was done. This was my life and this is why I was going to live and everything was my fault and I would be held accountable for that if I ever tried to leave him. Oh, and Amanda. That was yeah, that was really tough. Um I pretty much went into depression at that point and just really struggled. I was living in Utah. My parents were in Washington, but they kept, they kept on trying to talk to me and find out what was going on. Um, the, the verbal abuse then turned into physical abuse pretty much early on, probably two months into our marriage. That's when it started to get physical. And I knew at that point that he would probably kill me if, I even attempted anymore to have a physical relationship with him. So it just became a very, it became a game of watching what I was saying, how I was saying it with him, um, not looking like I wanted to have an intimate relationship with him at all. And, and that's pretty much the way that we lived for the few, the first few months of our marriage. Wow. Yeah. Um, so then eventually my dad 
out of the blue, my dad just showed up one day and my dad said, you've got 15 minutes to pack up your stuff and to go. And I didn't know what to do. My husband was at work and my dad knew right away that I was not in a good situation. So I did, I packed up everything and I went back to Washington state and my parents automatically got me into, um, with a counselor an LDS counselor over there and seeing the Bishop over there, of course. And, um, I, it was pretty much in that first visit after talking to the counselor and that's when my counselor, um, had, had said the word latent homosexual. I had no idea what that was. I had never heard of that. I did not even, I, I couldn't even understand that concept of, of my husband being a latent homosexual. So essentially she was saying he had homosexual tendencies. However, he did not want to come to terms with it. So while I was meeting with my counselor, my ex-husband was in Utah meeting with the counselor as well. Um, the bishop had given him a counselor to meet with. The our two counselors kind of conversed back and forth. And his counselor was saying, absolutely, there's no way this guy is homosexual. Mine was going back and forth. But either way, we looked at it. The bishop, everyone felt like I needed to go back, except for me. <laughs> everyone felt like I needed to go back. My mom and, and dad. You had, yeah. And you just, you had so many people involved in this, oh, in your absolutely. marriage. Yes. And we had different, you know, outlooks, but the main thing was, and it was always reminded to me was this isn't just for fun. We had made a commitment to each other to be married forever and eternity. And we can't just easily give up on this no matter what. And so I, and I, and I knew that I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to really make this relationship work. And so I, um, we had agreed a few months, uh, I think a few months into me being in Spokane that I would go back and he came and picked me up. My ex-husband did packed up my things and on the way home, he looked at me and said, if you ever do that again, I will kill you. Those were <gasps> his exact words. And I knew it. I knew at that point that that, that would happen. Yes, absolutely. I never questioned it. So we just did. We went right back to the way that we were living before. Um, just the verbal abuse. And one day when I was, um, I had come home from work and I had walked, I was walking back and forth to work and he was upset. My husband was home. He was on his way to school and he, he was upset about the way I'd done the dishes. He didn't like that. And I just closed the door and I started walking back to work and all of a sudden I could feel him behind me. And that's when he grabbed me and pushed me out into the oncoming traffic <gasps> where I was almost there. And that's when he said to me, I'm going to kill you if you don't, if you don't do things the way that I want, essentially. And I, I just was waiting for it at that point. I was so low. I was so down that it was just. It was just pure sadness. You know, you don't, you don't know how to handle this. I, I just didn't. I felt guilty. I felt responsible. 
I felt like, what have I done? Um, I felt like I can't get out of this. I, I had all of these emotions going on. I didn't know what to do. So when we were in Logan, Utah, um, we both, my ex-husband and I had started seeing a, a counselor and, um, it was after a session, I was just downtrodden. I would just agree with whatever my ex-husband was saying about me. Um, I would just agree. I would just, I was beaten down and he had my husband leave and I started to talk to the counselor and the counselor looked right at me and said, you need to leave. I firmly believe that your husband is a latent homosexual and you need to leave this relationship. And that's when everything started to unravel. And my dad finally came back and got me and I never saw him again. Wow. Yeah. How, how traumatic and damaging. Yes. And unfortunately, instead of coming home and doing counseling, I just started seeing the bishop. We couldn't afford counselors. So I just started seeing the bishop once a week and the bishop was the same situation. He felt like my mother had convinced me that I was in a bad relationship. He felt like I should have worked harder, that I could have done more. Um, it, it just, it never stopped. And I just, I never got the help that I needed for it. I never dealt with the trauma. That was the main thing was I never dealt with the trauma of it all. Everyone just wanted to forget about it. It was, we're going to move on. We're going to forget. You're going to get remarried again someday. And we're just going to forget that this ever happened. We're going to, we're going to move on with our lives. And that's what I had decided to do. Well, it was like everyone was making the decisions for you, even about what what to think and how to respond. How yes. how did you get yourself out of that? I I to be honest with you, I really didn't. I I just moved on. I moved on the best way that I could and got divorced and started working and making friends again. I never at that point even questioned the church. I never questioned the bishops. I never I never, looking back, I, I never thought twice about it. I thought this is something I have to deal with and I'm going to deal with it and I'm going to move on and I'm going to go on with my life and everything will be okay. So I just, I took all those emotions, all those feelings, and I just put them in the back burner. I put them behind everything that I knew and just became my normal self. It was, now I was going to be friendly and I was going to be outgoing and I was going to have fun and you know but yet within the laws of the church and um pretty much within two years I had found my my husband that I have today and it I don't want to say it was true love at, at first sight it was very not wanting to be in a relationship sure. um, I knew that he the, the great thing that about him was our very first date. And usually this is when I would lose other suitors or whenever I would be dating someone. This is when I would lose them is when I would say, just so you know, I've been married before. 
and that pretty much would not warrant a second date. <laughs> and wow. I remember my husband had just started coming back to church. He came from an inactive family and had started coming back. And he looked at me and he said, oh, that's totally fine. He's like, I've had sex before. And I knew that that was what I needed at that point. I Aww. knew that I had to be with someone that had already had sex and knew that he was comfortable and good with it and that everything would be okay. And I, it, it quickly went from there. I never even, I, I didn't have to second guess this because I knew that this was what God has sent me. Yeah, he had just made me feel wanted and beautiful and loved, which was something I had never had. Right, something so new, both from oh. your upbringing and from your previous marriage. Yes. Yep. And it, it was, it was beautiful. And I feel like I, I felt like I had healed when I found him. I had healed. I was in a good place. I was in a loving relationship. Now we were going to church. We were doing everything we needed to do. Um, and so at that point as well, we, I, I mean, my husband had been sexually active before we had gotten married and I knew that if we weren't married pretty quickly, that we were going to go down that road of sure. not being able to get married in the temple. And it wasn't what I had, you know, wanted for my life, but we didn't know how long that the temple cancellation would take. We had no idea. At that point, we were hearing, you know, months and months. And I thought there's no way. So at that point, we decided to get married. We got married just for time in the temple which I didn't know you could do, but we had. Oh, I didn't know out. that either. Yep. So we just had gotten married for time in the temple. And then a year later, we got sealed in the temple with our baby. Yes. Wow. So, so you yeah. were able to, even though your, your temple divorce hadn't gone through, you were able to go to the temple and yep. get married for time. How interesting. Yes. I guess. And that's exactly the way that it had worked out. And I was happy with that. We, it turned out our cancellation actually came very quickly because we had not been married for very long. I think it was maybe a month after. Um, one of the main things that they allow you do, to do when we were looking at the cancellation is to talk to my ex-husband's bishop and tell them of the situation, which I gladly did. Um, my ex-husband was also getting married at the same exact time which frightened me for that poor girl. Oh. I honestly was just sick to my stomach. They would not give me any information about her, which I just wanted so badly to just warn this poor girl. And I wasn't allowed. I was only allowed to talk to the bishop and to write a letter, which I did both. And the bishop from that point just pretty much was not interested in what I had to say. Did not believe it. Did not feel like it was honest and he knew him, um, you know, he's, he's a, your classic abuser. He's very loving, just great personality. Oh, he could sell ice to an Eskimo. He was, <laughs> he was amazing that way. Just, you know, girls would talk to him and just ooh and ah, because he said everything that you wanted to hear. He was great. He was a master manipulator. And I knew that, and I just felt for this girl. I, I was sick to my stomach about it. So I tried. I felt like I had tried at least 
Right. And from that point on, I knew I was just going to move on, which I did. So we started our family and in the church and I've held every calling and never questioned the church. I never had an issue with any of the policies. I felt like I was in a really good place and we had moved quite a bit and it was our last move to Colorado and I was a stay home mom and I just got sad again. I was sad for not having friends anymore and moving to a new area. And my kids were struggling at that time with moving. And um, I fell into a depression again, which I hadn't experienced in 15 years. Hmm. And I, I didn't know how to deal with it. I just thought it would, it would go away like it had before. And there was one instance of my husband and I were getting a car loan and we had gone into the bank. And I remember looking at the gentleman behind the desk waiting to do our car loan. And I knew that he was going to ask me questions and I could, I couldn't do it. I could not go in that room. I physically could not step foot into there. I was having such flashbacks of, that bishop telling me I was going to burn in hell that I knew I couldn't walk in that room. And it, my husband looked at me and said, what is going on? You know, we got to go in here. And I said, please don't make me go in that room. I cannot go in that room. And eventually I talked myself into it. I went into the room and that was when I had my very first panic attack. Oh my goodness. Out of body, I couldn't breathe. It, um, it absolutely upset my life. And here I'd had this panic attack. I had all of these thoughts and these issues with, you know, what the bishop had said to me. And I, it was so real to me. It was like the bishop had just said it an hour before. That is how real that felt to me at that time when I was having a panic attack. It was, it was all of a sudden, everything that I had pushed out and pushed away and pushed away for all those years just came to a head. And from that point on, I dealt with severe panic attacks. Um, wow. So yep. it just, it just finally boiled over. Yep, it did. I, I, I knew what it was. I knew what it was from because I was having issues of those feelings. I knew, it, it, you know, you would have thought that it would have come from an abusive husband and from all the trauma of that, but it turned out to be the bishop. And what the bishop said to me was the most traumatic thing that I had gone through. Um, and then I just became angry. <laughs> I became very angry over how I felt, over what had happened. And I wasn't mad at the church. I wasn't mad at the bishop. I was mad at myself. I was so mad at myself for becoming a different person. I was so out there. I talked to people. I, I was always in a group of some kind talking to people. And now I've gotten to the point where I couldn't talk to anybody. I didn't want to leave my house. I, I was afraid to go anywhere because I never knew when I was going to have another panic attack. I never knew when it was going to hit. 
I knew there was triggers to it, but I didn't quite know what the triggers were. And I was terrified. And I started to just live a recluse life. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I just wanted it to go away. That's what I wanted. I didn't want to deal with it. I wanted it to go away. And it didn't. And I was mad. Oh, I was mad. And I dealt with that madness for a very, very long time. I hid my panic attacks the best that I could. Um, my husband was always a very, he was a fixer. He wanted to fix my panic attacks. He wanted, you know, he wanted me to go to therapy and just fix them. And I couldn't, I couldn't go into a therapy room. I couldn't go into the small room. I couldn't take my kids to the doctor when they had to go. I couldn't talk to a bishop. I, I couldn't do anything that involved a room with a gentleman sitting there and asking me questions. Wow. I couldn't, I, I just couldn't deal with any of that. It, it, it got to the point where my panic attacks were ruining my, they were, they were ruling my life. They were telling me where I can go, when I can go, who I can talk to, who I can't talk to. Um, so I did eventually see a therapist. I was at that point where I was just desperate. So I thought I'm going to go to a therapist. They're going to, they're going to give me some kind of, you know, e therapy where I don't have to think about it and I'm going to be good. And unfortunately, the moment I got into the room, I had a panic attack and I couldn't even talk, let alone breathe. And it just, it brought me down just so low where I didn't know how to handle it. But at the same time, I was taught my entire life, you just put on a happy face. You mm -hmm. put on a happy face and you show the world that you've got your crap together, even though you don't. And that was the life that I lived for many years. I just smiled. And when I knew that I was going to be put in a situation, you know, like talking to the bishop or any small rooms, I couldn't take my kids to the doctor anymore. All of those situations I knew that I couldn't do. And so I'd either put that on my husband or I wouldn't do it. Um, I, I knew that that was my trigger. I had other triggers when people would come up behind me um, and touch me if they would, if they would try to scare me, anything. My kids had to become very aware of my, of my panic attacks and what my triggers were, which was heartbreaking because they knew this mom of fun, outgoing, let's go places, let's do this to a mom of Let's just stay in today. I don't feel like I'm mentally healthy enough to go outside today. And so we all kind of learned how to work around my panic attacks so that I could function. Wow. And so this therapist you were able to go see where you had that panic attack, were you able to make progress with that therapist? Or I only did you went to... once. I only you went only once. went the once. Yep. And she, I had told her as much as I could about the LDS faith and she did not know much. She hmm. was not aware of, of what was going on. And I, so I just knew that that wasn't what I was going to do. I just, I gave, I pretty much gave up at that point. I just thought this is how I'm going to live my life and I'm going to be angry and I'm going to be pissed about it. But this is 
how I'm going to live my life. And I did not, I absolutely did not want to deal with it. It was so much easier just to be angry about it and Mm -hmm. to work around it than it was to deal with it. And that's how I lived my life up until um, we got called into the primary. I don't, we had moved again and I had gotten called into the primary and let, um, I was doing the primary program. We had, we were doing a rehearsal of the primary program and I had a very loud child in my group and my anxiety was just going through the roof. And finally, I, you know, I could only push down the panic attack so much until I had a panic attack. My husband came and got me. And from that moment on, I, I couldn't go to church anymore. I, I, I just couldn't. I knew at that point that I couldn't put on a facade anymore. And that made me not want to go to church. If people couldn't see me as perfect, then I didn't want to go to church. So that's how I lived my life for a year. I never started off leaving the church thinking or questioning the truthfulness of it. it sure, was, it sounds like it was just a necessity. It was a necessity. I, I absolutely felt like everyone else around me was perfect. The main thing I didn't want to do is I didn't want to upset life for my kids. And so my husband would take my kids every Sunday. We would do the, they would do the activities. The only thing different was that mom wasn't going to church anymore. And we still did our family home evening. We still did everything, you know, family prayer, everything we needed to do. But just, I just wasn't going to church anymore. And um, about a year into that, that's when I said, I need to find for myself. I need to figure out if this church is really what I want to do or if I need to step away and find out whether or not this church is true at all. And that's when I started doing my research and heavily into it. I absolutely didn't want to go off of just what one person was saying. I wanted to get, uh, I wanted to read books. I wanted to learn everything that I possibly could about the LDS faith, the good, the bad, and the ugly. That's what I wanted. I finally let myself, you know, be tempted by Satan per se and start reading anti-Mormon literature. And that absolutely saved my life. Absolutely saved my life. I no longer had to be perfect. How, how incredibly freeing to, to discover that you didn't have to be perfect anymore. Oh, it was, it was huge. It was huge for me knowing that God loves me, that God loves me, whether I was perfect or not, absolutely blew my mind. And the first time I thought it is the first time I knew that that was true. I had never thought that before. I only pictured God if I was doing X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And then changing my thought process and saying, does God love me even though I don't want to 
to be a member of this church anymore? Does God still love me? And knowing at that point that he did and that he was happy with me, he loved me for who I was, that's when my God changed. Absolutely. My Mormon God versus my, my non-Mormon God without religion, without any religion, my Mormon God had to change. And so slowly from that point on, we all just left. My husband was the first to leave. Um, and then all of my boys eventually um, left. So wow. it, it, was, it was a process. I, I absolutely have spent years of trying to, you know, find other religions and other forms of belief. And I just know from this point, it's, it's not for me anymore. One way of thinking just isn't for me. Um, I feel like my mind just has been expanded to understand so much more than I ever possibly could. I never, I never was angry and I'm still not angry about the LDS church and its teachings. Um, I, I see the good and I see the bad absolutely on both sides, but I never was angry and I'm, And I don't know if that was an emotion that I was prepared for. Um, I guess I thought I would be or figured I would be just because of the way that I was raised and the way that I got married. But at the same time, I learned through reading that my trauma was my superpower. What I went through brought me to where I am today, where I, what I went through brought me to my husband and to my children and all of that was for a purpose did it suck does it still suck absolutely so i i just i had to give up that thought of getting rid of my panic attacks i i've always just focused on on just putting a band-aid on those panic attacks let's get rid of those so that way i can function instead of thinking i gotta deal with this trauma I have to deal with this trauma to be able to cure the panic attacks. And, you know, my, my path looked differently once I saw it that way. And my path didn't involve a therapist. Some people, that's what worked. My path didn't look like that. My, my, my therapy had to come from within. And knowing who I was, and how God loved me and how I should love myself. And that is where I had to find my peace. Wow. And so I have to ask, do you, do you still struggle with panic attacks occasionally? Yes, unfortunately. Um, I, I do. However, at the same time, I, I'm not angry about my panic attacks anymore. I, I was so angry for so long that it just became a part of my feelings. I didn't know I was angry, but I knew that every morning I'd wake up and I'd think about it and it would make me angry. And I absolutely have had to do a 180 on my panic attacks. What are they, what is my body telling me right now? What is, what am I learning? And I have learned meditation in the morning. Absolutely has worked wonders for me. Absolutely wonders. Tapping has worked wonders for me. So instead of like your conventional, go to a therapy, trust me, I have thought of it. I have done it. 
And I have had to look outside just your conventional ways of therapy and do more of an internal, who am I? What am I thinking about right now? Does, do I feel loved? Do I feel accepted? All of that. And I have to question it. And that has absolutely slowed down my progress of how often I'm having panic attacks. Wow. Amanda, I am just, I'm blown away by your story. You, you just come from this world where, you know, everyone is thinking for you, making decisions for you, telling you what you need and what you don't need. And now you've come to this place where you are in tune with your mind and your body and you are giving yourself what you need and checking in with yourself and finding your truth and your belief system. It's, it's an amazing transformation. It had to be it for me. It had to be. I, I knew that I had to change it for my kids, for my husband, um, and for more importantly, more than anything, it had to be for me. I, I was no longer willing to live in sadness and despair. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't. And, you know, I had people that had left the church that were saying, well, you should be angry. And I had people that were in the church that were saying, you know, this isn't you, this is Satan taking over your body. I had to tune out everything and say, Amanda, what is it that you believe? What is it that you love? What is, what is something that, that is making you happy? What makes you happy? What makes you feel loved? What makes you feel important? All of those things. What is it that I want and what I need without thinking or, or even contemplating about what other people thought of what my healing would look like? And that was a lot of my journey was just going off of what people told me to do. Well, I saw this and this therapist and they work wonders or do, you know, I, I went and saw someone and they helped me with, um, you know, different types of, of healing. And, and none of that worked for me. It was once I made up my mind and once I figured out that this is what helps me for me, that's when my world changed to, for the better. Absolutely. Wow. And what a, what a testament to the, the idea that we are all on our own journeys here. I think that that mindset has helped me be a better mom because now I can look at my kids and say, you don't have to pass. You don't have to, you know, serve a mission just to find a wife, just to be happy. Like that isn't what you have to do in your life to find happiness, which I would say probably is the number one greatest thing that I've gained from this is it absolutely changed and stopped the cycle. It's that cycle that is just kills you inside of the LDS faith, that cycle of go on a mission, get married, get a full-time job and have children. And that's what you do when you stay active and, then you wait for the next generation to go through the same thing. And I, I'm so glad that I have seen it so that I don't raise my kids the same way. I don't want them to turn 21 and feel like they only had an option of either going on a mission or getting married. Like that never, I never want them to feel like that. And I never want them to feel like it's okay to be in a, in a relationship, even if it's a marriage where you are belittled and brought to utter despair. I never 
want that for them. My gosh. Amen to that. Yes. That's beautiful. So unfortunately, um, with my mom and my dad, my dad became a patriarch and I have a brother-in-law that was a stake president, another brother-in-law that was a bishop. And I knew when I left that it was going to be really, really hard on my mom and dad. I did know that. And I, I did not tell anyone. I didn't want to be the one to tell. And so I called my dad and I told him. And I said, can you please tell mom? <laughs> my mother is huge into the temple. She loved going to the, fam- to the temple as a family. Um, it was her favorite thing when we would all come to visit. And I didn't, I just, I was terrified of telling her. And so my dad did. My dad told her, told my siblings. And I guess I just imagined that process to be different. I had a very, very good relationship with my sisters. And I honestly thought that they would come and approach me and say, what's going on? Where are you at? You know, what are you thinking? And I was more than happy. I was more than excited to tell them about what was going on. I was never intending to bash the church. I, I knew that that wasn't the way that I wanted to talk to them. Because their faith, faith is really strong for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just was really careful on what I was going to say. But no one ever did. My mother never asked me. No one ever asked me. And they just became different. Um, they just wouldn't call as often. And we would never talk about the church. You know, the conversations became um, smaller. Um, and I... I really didn't know how to handle that. I didn't know if I should talk to them individually or if I just ignored it. And um, I decided to come home and talk to my mom and dad about what was going on. And um, I walked into their home and I was there for a little while. And then I looked on the wall where they keep everyone's family pictures. They had all of my siblings, all of our family pictures up. And I noticed that ours was down. (gasps) I said to my mother, what happened to our picture? And my mom at that point said, your father and I, with him being the patriarch, have decided that we want to be able to feel the spirit in our home. And with your family leaving the church, we don't feel the spirit. So was it hurtful? Yes. Was it surprising? No. That's just the way that my mom works. Um, she was angry about it and she didn't want to talk to me about her anger about it. And so she decided to use the spirit as her, as her way of communicating that she wasn't happy with me and saying, well, we didn't feel the spirit with your, with your picture in our family, especially with your dad being the patriarch and giving blessings. And he's supposed to have this, you know, they bless your home. They bless your, the room that you give your blessings in. I, I mean, it's, it's a big deal when you're the patriarch and um, our, our family picture did not bring the spirit into their lives. And that was the last time I talked to my mom and dad. That was it. So that's been two years. Wow. Yes. Oh my gosh. Just, 
I, I have no words. The pain that must have caused. It, it, it did. Um, but I, looking back and talking to my mother, my mother didn't know how to talk about anything outside of the church. And once I left the church, it was constantly like, we're praying for you. Um, when my son had graduated a few years ago, the first thing my, my parents did when they walked in our home from even coming to visit was showing my kids a picture of my grandfather and saying he was an alcoholic. And if you don't go to church, this is what happens. He died young. He had a heart attack. And that was the first thing that she had said to my kids. And I, I was just over that. I was over that mentality of, you know, the guilt, the guilt is what kills you the most, I think of, you know, oh my gosh, mom and dad don't go to church anymore. And they have drinks on occasion. So does that mean they're alcoholics? That must mean they're alcoholics. And that was her message to my kids. And I, I knew that I didn't need that. I didn't need that in my, in my journey of, of healing. I didn't want that type of guilt in my life anymore. So it, it, it became the best situation for me. And it sucks. It's awful. It, it is so sad to me that my, my kids don't have grandparents anymore. And they don't have that relationship all because of religion. You know, we're still good people. We still do good things. And my kids are great, great human beings. And my mom and dad are just not that, which I think is more sad for them than it is for my own kids because they're missing out on some awesome, awesome kids. I'm sure they are. Wow. It's, it's, um, I think this for, for those listening to this, you know, this account, um, who are active members of the church, um, who experience family members or children that leave for, for reasons that, you know, all across the board, what, what advice do you have for them based on your circumstances in order to preserve their family relationships? Absolutely. It is just love and acceptance. I know that I used to be that person. I used to be that person that was so sad when my friends would leave the church and just think to myself, oh, well, there goes another soul that's lost to Satan. You know, I, I remember thinking like that. And so I, I can totally understand my parents' way of thinking. Just that utter sadness of she's not going to live with us. That's their way of thinking. Her and her husband and her children will never live with us in the eternities. So I think it's just changing that mindset of loving who they are, loving them as an individual outside of faith. It's hard to do. Yes, absolutely. Is that hard to do? But it has to be done for there to be healing, for there to be progress, for any sort of transition to, to be made in your own heart. Yes. And, you know, and the church focuses so much on the family, 
you know, oh, yeah. and, and I'm, I'm hopeful, you know, and that that's the whole purpose behind this podcast. I'm, I'm hopeful that there can be an intersection between, you know, us as ex Mormons who value our family relationships in, in this life, you know, and, and the value that, that active members of the church place on the family in this life and the next, if we could, you know, come together and focus on, okay, despite what we believe is happening after this life, can we, can we be together now? Yes. Yep. Absolutely. Cause that's what we want more than anything. I can't think for me personally, I can't think that this is the end of everything and that I won't see my husband and my kids and my grandparents, everybody that I've loved. I couldn't give that portion up of my LDS faith. I, I just couldn't. However, it doesn't look like worlds anymore. It doesn't look like tears anymore of, of who's going to be at the top and who's going to be at the bottom. To me, that is, that is so far from way, the way that I can think now. Because right. I never, I, I just, I can't. I can't think that Jesus would be disappointed in me. That was a huge part of my transition was giving up on that. Giving up on the fact that Jesus was disappointed in me. That, that brought me down more than anything else. And once I could change that into just love. Love, God made me who I am. He brought the trials into the world that I have been given for love and for teaching and for learning. And to make other people better. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another piece that ex-Mormons and Mormons can all agree on is, is our faith in love. Oh, um, yes. Yeah. Um, just, you know, like the love you have for your child or your parent or your sibling or your spouse or your friends, you know, that yep. love is, is real and I think that's a truth that we can all agree on. And so yeah. preserving that and, and putting that first in some of these situations, I think is just absolutely crucial. Oh yeah. And I, and I think that's a huge part of the LDS faith is they tell you, you know, you, you aren't here to judge people, but how many times have we thought, Oh, you, you know, you believe in homosexuality. Well, you know, obviously you're not following the prophet. So obviously you shouldn't be going to the temple. I remember thinking like that when I would talk to members thinking, well, I'm not really judging. However, at the same time, you probably shouldn't have a temple recommend because you, you believe outside of the prophets. And how disgusted I get with myself looking back and thinking that I felt like that was okay. That wasn't judging. That was just the truth. Right. You right. Know. Or, or we, we loop it under, you know, like righteous judgment, you know, oh, that judgment absolutely. we're allowed to do. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's such a good point because yeah, we are taught all the time, you know, um, God is the judge. Christ is our advocate, but we make assumptions all the time, you know, like your parents oh, yeah. did assuming that, you know, they weren't going to be with you for eternity. Now, is that their call? No, no, they, they can, yeah, they could make the assumption based on the information they have, but who knows, you know, what comes after this life or, you know, even if, you know, the Mormon church does hold, you know, the truth, they, they still don't make that call, you know, even within the confines of the LDS church doctrine, that's not their call to make. I I think it's just that mindset of when they took down my family pictures, did they think that if they could, if they were to die the next day, that, that they would see 
Jesus and they would and Jesus would say to them, I'm so proud of you for taking down your daughter's family pictures. That right. essentially is the what they're thinking, that they will be rewarded for that type of thinking. And I guess I, I don't understand that anymore. Right. I, I just don't I don't see that as a possibility. Now I I have just a couple more questions before you know, we wrap things up. And of course, if you want to add anything else, as I, you know, give you these last few questions, please. Yeah. But are you, so currently, do you, do you interact with a lot of members of the church in your, in your community or in your daily life? I do just because I live in Utah and that is my neighborhood. The one thing that I have done though, is after, you know, moving here, we did not transfer our records. We haven't done anything with the records. And so no one, as far as I know, knows that we used to be members because I noticed right away after moving to Utah, just with the few people that we had told that we used to be members and that we're not anymore, they automatically assumed that we were haters, that we were going to dog the, the, the LDS faith, that we were going to bring everybody down. And, and that was just an assumption made by a lot of people. And we didn't want that. We didn't want that in our neighborhood because we knew that essentially we would suffer and our kids would suffer. And so we just kept that very quiet. And when people mm -hmm. would ask us, we would just say, oh, that sounds nice. You know, that it's great that the church is doing that. Because of course we get constant neighborhood parties, LDS faith parties and and all of the above and we we just try to keep religion out of our relationships the best that we can even though it's very difficult in utah but, for sure yeah gotcha so um so you you've had to in order to sidestep that stereotype of being a you know an anti-mormon you oh, yeah. you've just kind of avoided that altogether by not really sharing that piece with your community is that right oh absolutely yep because they do i it, it most people that we yeah they would just assume that we were haters and that we were going to tell their kids you know everything bad about the lds church and that never has been, never will be. We, we are more than accepting of other people and the way that they want to live and the way that they want to believe is, is completely okay with, I'm not here to judge them and they sure as heck shouldn't be here to judge me. Mm -hmm. So it, it had to get to the point where it was just not set. And so you have a um, a special perspective here as someone who has been an active member of the church and now someone who has left the church. Um, what do you have any advice or insights on finding common ground and fostering constructive dialogue between Mormons and ex-Mormons? I, I honestly, I, I, I'm not really sure. I don't know if that is ever going to happen. <laughs> Um, where we can talk about religion and be okay with both sides. I feel like we have just been taught our entire lives to not listen to anything that's not in alignment with the church. If it's said and it's not in alignment, 
then that's not right. Let's not listen. Let's not entertain this idea. Let's not even think about it. Right. Yeah. I, I totally see that. I would love to see that happen to the point where non-members and members can be in a community and talk religion and just have a healthy dialogue and say, it's okay, my friends be friends with your kids and vice versa. I, I would love for that to happen and to see that. I'm just not sure if it will ever get to that point. Yeah. I mean, you've got a really good point. I mean, I guess, you know, we can, we can hope, but it's true. It comes down to everyone's individual ability to create space for that. That's something that, you know, from our conversation here, I, I've been able to tell you've done that really well by not, you know, harboring anger as you've left. You, you're able to hold space and respect the beliefs of people that are still within the church um, while also holding firm in, in your own beliefs and your, your right to believe um, the way you want to believe. And I think that that's so powerful. And I, I just, I hope that it's something that others can develop as well. I hope so as well if not for my generation, but for my kids' generation and after. Mm-hmm. To me, it's just so big and such a thing that we need to deal with, especially inside of Utah. We have got to find some common ground. It's got to stop this back and forth of anti and for- firm believing and being okay with each other. There are some great things about the LDS church and there's some not so great things that pretty much is humanity. You know, yes. there's good and there's bad to all of us, no matter faith, religion, anything. And we have seen what religion and, and not being on the same page can do to countries and that hatred for each other. We've seen what that can do. And yet we keep on following down that, that path of not respecting other faiths, religions, all of the above. We have seen that. Right. And I don't want that for my kids. I don't want that for my grandkids. I don't want that for anyone. Isn't it interesting how, you know, even in the Book of Mormon, the the conflict between the Lamanites and the Nephites, the lesson that's always taken from that is don't sin rather than, you know, and at the end of the Book of Mormon, a whole nation is, is destroyed. Oh, absolutely. When what, you know, what if, what if they had found some common ground and had found peace together, then everyone could have lived, you know? I lived my life in, in anger for so long, so long, just of being miserable with myself and what I was faced with. And once I gave that up, just what relief, what, what beauty has come from my life and the happiness that I never knew that I could feel just by giving that one little thing up every single day, the anger and the hatred, Mm -hmm. giving that up and saying, I'm going to love myself. I'm going to love my family. I'm going to love whatever it is, my neighbors, everyone even with their shortcomings, I'm going to love them. I know I keep saying this, but wow, that was just beautiful. And I have one more question for you, 
we have a lot of um, listeners, you know, who are transitioning members or physically in, mentally out members of the church. What advice or insights would you offer to individuals who are questioning their faith or considering leaving the Mormon church? I never thought it would be this hard. Absolutely. I honestly thought by leaving that I would still have my family and that I would still have my friends, just a different, just a different version of who they are. I, I really thought that and going into it, I lost a lot. I have often thought to myself, knowing what I know now, after leaving the church and everything I've lost, everything I've lost, friends and support, oh my goodness, support, um, would I do it again? And every single time I think of it, I think absolutely, because my life is so much more positive having positive people in my life and getting rid of the trauma, getting rid of the people that were bringing me down. And a lot of that was family, absolutely, which is heartbreaking. But I, I couldn't do it anymore. I just couldn't. And does that mean that not everybody has come along with me on my journey? Absolutely. But the most important people in my life have supported me on my journey. And that's all I need. That's it. I know it's scary. It's so scary leaving. Oh my goodness. Because we've been raised knowing that the church is our family. And once you give that up, what are you, what are you looking at? But I have been so much more happy and free than I ever could have imagined. And for that, I am just so grateful that I am where I am today. I've been through those hard times of telling family and friends and and dealing with their disappointment to the point where I am now. Wow, it just what a beacon of of hope and a, a, some really great nuggets of truth, you know, just you know, it's going to be hard for people that are on the edge or or thinking or researching, you know, but um what wonderful advice. Um, Amanda, is there anything else that you wanted to share with listeners before we wrap things up? The one thing that I um, really do try to advocate for in the LDS church is change with bishops. If I could change anything, it would be stop, stop telling our bishops that they are counselors when they are not. They affected my life more than was necessary or if I would have just gone to a therapist that went to school for years mm-hmm. and instead I only had bishops and their opinions do you know how much of our lives have been changed because of what a bishop has said and we all know that a bishop in Idaho versus, you know, Washington is going to tell you something totally different with the same, with the same question. We're just purely going off of what one man, what one man believes, and he is changing your life from that. We are, we, we have been conditioned. We have been taught through the the LDS church that bishops are led and guided by heavenly father. And once you give that 
once you can change that mindset of, I probably should not put all of my faith into one human being, but yet into either yourself or a person that has gone to school and has been trained to help someone with severe trauma. That is huge to me. It is absolutely huge because that has to change. Marriages have either, you know, they've been changed because of what a bishop's opinion is. Women have trauma because of what a bishop has said to them. So absolutely, if they could, I, I would love to see that day when they will stop saying, just go to your bishop and listen to whatever he has to say. It, it absolutely. Mm. That's such an important piece, especially, you know, coming from where you're coming from in your story. Thank you. Yeah. For sharing I don't, we don't want that for, we don't want that for our kids. We don't want that. We don't want that cycle to continue. So I think that's my message more than anything is for true believings, believing members of the LDS faith. Start to question that. Don't just send your kids unknowingly to your bishop expecting that they're going to give them the right answer and help them with their depression or whatever may be bothering them. Don't, don't put all of your faith into that when you know that you can take them to a trained therapist and professional that can really make a difference and help them. The way of course. it needs to happen. Yeah. Yes. And I, I believe the church even, you know, oh, yeah. has said things at some point where it's like, you know, there, there's a reason, you know, doctors, oh, medication, yeah. that's important. And so, yes, I hope this is a message to active members to keep that in mind. Like, you know, while you, you may believe that bishops are called of God and that's a perfectly valid belief, yep. remember to keep keep things in their lane, you know, go yes. to your bishop for your religious and spiritual concerns, of course. Yep. But when it comes to, you know, mental health needs and things like that, please seek professional help. I think exactly. that's Exactly. And that's get huge. the therapy that they need. Absolutely. Because it can make a world of difference. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Well, Amanda, I, I, it's an understatement when I say that this has been a pleasure. It's been amazing hearing your story and your thoughts and um just your willingness to be to be open and sharing all this thank you so much for being on no, with us I, I love it and if i can save one woman save one woman from getting into an abusive relationship and staying there because of guilt i feel like you know it's worth screaming and shouting from the rooftops mm-hmm. because abuse is both both both, both verbal and physical abuse is life altering. And mm-hmm. it, 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 I want to stop that cycle. There's no excuse for it. No matter what, we should never, ever be okay with it. And if you are in that situation, get out, get out and run because no one should have to be in that situation. We are better than that, especially as women we deserve better. That's the word I was going to use too. Yes. We deserve all of the joy, you know, that this world has to offer. Yep. Absolutely. There is hope. There is hope. Well, thank you, Amanda. And thank you to all of our listeners for, for 
being here with us um, on this episode. Um, and I hope you'll you'll stay tuned for the next one. We'll we'll catch you then. Thank you so much. Thank you.